What's up, hardcore humans? This is Dr. Mike. Absolutely thrilled to be talking with heavy metal legend and Twisted Sister frontman, Dee Snider. In retrospect, Twisted Sister's 1984 album, Stay Hungry, was sort of a blueprint for hardcore humanism. And it was a mission statement for the ethos of heavy metal. Songs like We're Not Gonna Take It were letting people know that the metal community rejects the stereotypes and judgments placed upon it. And songs like I Wanna Rock were a brazen statement of purpose. Turn it down, you say? No, not a chance. We're not turning it down. We're turning it up. We are metal and we are proud. So either get some earplugs or move on. And Stay Hungry was that same type of message. Work hard. Don't get complacent. Keep moving forward. And Dee has lived his whole life by that ethos. We talk about how he went in front of the Parents Music Resource Center hearings in 1985 and spoke against stereotypes of metal and music in general. And we talk about his new album, For the Love of Metal Live, and new single, Prove Me Wrong. Clearly, this is a guy who has never stopped rocking, and he has stayed hungry all these years later. So now, let's listen to what Dee has to say. We are here with rock and metal royalty, Dee Snyder, of course, of Twisted Sister. And over 40 years ago, there's one person who has been out there right from the beginning, setting the standard for the culture, for the ethos, and that is Dee Snyder with Twisted Sister. The 1984 album, Stay Hungry, was as much of a mission statement as anything. I want to rock. We're not going to take it. Stay hungry. I mean, this was basically setting the mark for people that's saying, we are the metal community. We're not afraid of you. We're not ashamed of who we are. We want this aggressive. We want this confrontational music and culture. And we're going to work as long as we have to to build it. And, and here you are, however many years later, and you're still doing it. You've got your new album out for the love of metal live. Uh, you proved me wrong single. And so I guess, I guess the first thing is, is just to say thank you, because I got to grow up in a world where metal was a thing. You know, you grew up in a world where metal hadn't really been born yet. And I, you know, I got to have all the benefits of the music and the culture and the people and all the experiences. So first off, thank you very much. No, well, thank you for truly appreciating, understanding the effort I was making. A, a lot of people, there are many who do, but there are many who don't really get it. I was, I was on a mission, but also I want to add one thing to say, everything you're saying, plus the fact that we were intelligent. It was this uh, implication that somehow because you like this, this powerful form of music, you were not as smart as other people. You were not as good as other people. You were evil. You were, there was a lot of negative thoughts and ideas connected to loving heavy metal. And I was very much out to prove that they were not mutually exclusive. You could be an intelligent person. You could be a kind person. You could be a, a Christian person. You could be a father, a, a mother, whatever, and still love this powerful, powerful, angry, a lot of times, very angry music. And so let's, let's go back because the world that I have come into, all those stereotypes, at least from my perspective, have been shattered. And, and quite frankly, a lot of them have been shattered by you. And I want to get to talking about the PMRC 
and all the things that you've done to, to address those stereotypes. But let's go back to the beginning because before D Snyder was D Snyder, you were just a kid listening to metal. And, and why don't we start with talking about the origins of metal for you? You know, what got you into metal and, you know, how did it feel to be a metalhead back in the seventies? Well, you know, I am 65 years old. I am a day one OG metalhead. Uh, I speak from being a part of, it wasn't even called that. It was called hard rock back then. And I had the day one black, first Black Sabbath album, day one first Led Zeppelin album, you know, the mountain. When I mean, you go back a little further, bands that were starting to define what hard rock was. And the term heavy metal, like so many other terms, and by the way, people, you don't realize this, the term punk, certainly the term hair metal, the term grunge, are all viewed and metal, or heavy metal were viewed as negative connotations given by critics as a put down. They were always banned. They labeled the bands in a negative way, and it would make bands like Zeppelin and Black Sabbath. They were negative, and people would be, uh, you know, punk. The punk bands, they were like, we're not, what, we're not punk. That was like a negative. They were rock bands. But the, but the critics had to put them down, had to pigeonhole them. So it was hard rock music, and it was the first form of music, Sabbath, Zeppelin, then Deep Purple, and others, Blue Cheer, of course, um, they were the first bands that alienated segments of the audience. Up until the birth of those bands, it was the Woodstock Nation. If you've ever seen or know Woodstock, you had The Who playing with Country Joe and the Fish and Richie Havens. So you had hard rock bands, folk bands, Crosby, Stills, and Nash were there. Sha Na Na that did 50s covers was there. Everybody loved everything up until heavy metal showed up. And suddenly a line was drawn, and I found myself as being one of the people who was like, no, I like that. I don't like this Woodstock bullshit. So, and suddenly, so you're welcome. I was there swinging a sledgehammer, breaking the Woodstock Nation apart. But heavy metal was the first music that really separated people and said, you're either with us or you're against us. And so now there's a lot of people who can just go online and you can go to Spotify who was listening to metal when you felt like the rest of the world just simply wasn't into it. I remember, well, first of all, like you talk about the, I talked about the Woodstock Nation coming apart. I remember nearly coming to blows with dear friends I'd grown up with when suddenly we realized that we were no longer the same. They didn't see the world the same way anymore. And they were talking derogatory about, I think it was Deep Purple. I remember being at a party and Deep Purple was performing on, on uh, in concert, which was a television show in the 70s. And some of my friends started like goofing on, Blackmore and Ian Gillen and the guys and me and my hard rock friends, we were like, what do you, what do you, we got, we got into a fight. It was a pushing match. I remember going outside and saying, what happened? Where did we, where did we come apart? So you suddenly, and then you started to realize you look different. Your hair was getting longer than what long hair was in, but it was suddenly different. And you just were starting to uh, personify something that other people did not like, and clearly did not like. Like I said, all forms of music everybody loved, except for heavy metal. That separated people. And so, you know, now with all of your success, like you say, you're 65, 
Stay Hungry is considered one of the best rock metal albums of all time. You're, you're cemented in to rock and metal history. But back then, you're a kid. You don't have any of that. How, how do you decide, I'm going to keep pushing forward with this as opposed to being like, you know, people don't like this. Uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't do it. Well, it was more of being an individual and, and, and the music helped to define that for me, for sure. But I remember very clearly at 16, I, I should say right before that, I found myself fading away. I found myself because I didn't look like everybody else and because I didn't quite fit in with any group. I was sort of a, a very much an outcast. I found myself becoming, the old term was wallflower, just someone who's in the background and not noticed. And at 16, I had this epiphany where I said, I shall not go silently into the night. I'm not going to be a, a, a nobody. I'm not going to be unrecognizable. Whether they like it or not, they're going to have to acknowledge that I exist. So I literally started going out of my way to be more recognized, to be more notable, recognized not in a famous way, just like even if it was, oh, that weird guy. But rather than just become nothing, and I say that to everybody, you know, just because you don't fit in some box, predetermined box, does not mean that you don't have a place in this world. And maybe the box is just you, but so be it. But do not allow yourself to be just forced into the background to become just sort of a, a nobody. And one of the things that, that you and I had actually talked about previously a little bit is that I, I always liked the fact that your quote unquote rebellion was not, I'm not against you. I'm just for me, you know, and that that's, that's different. You know, it's saying like, look, as long as you're willing to leave me alone, I'm going to leave you alone. And, and do you, do you see that as, as a big part of the metal ethos? Cause I, I feel like that that's something that runs through it all is that it's just, it's about kind of addressing, Hey, like you said, I'm here. That's it. That's all I'm saying. But I'm, but I'm definitely going to say that. Yeah, well, it, you know, very, very much so. But it first always has always frustrated me, and I've spoken out about this for decades now. With amongst ourselves, we will fight about what is true metal. You know, this is thrash metal, speed metal, death metal. You know, and then there's all these separations. We have a small slice of the pie, and then we insist on slicing it into slivers. Uh, and, and, and separating amongst ourselves this distinction. And I've always fought for people to say, look, you know, you don't have to love every kind of metal. Just support the community because we're already, uh, the minor already a minority out there. It's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I've always found fascinating is when, by definition, whether you want to call it rebellious or individualistic cultures, then create their own dogmatic rules. You know, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, like, why would we do that? I mean, we spent all this time fighting and elbowing our way to individuality. Why put any kind of constraints at that point? You use the word dogmatic, which is usually you hear referencing uh, religion, at least I do. But it is very similar there. I was raised a Protestant. And within the Protestant faith, there are so many different Protestants sort of arguing about the proper way to be a Protestant. Uh, I, I'm doing, I'm writing a screenplay now, and, um, and within the screenplay, there's Mennonites. A Mennonite group are an offshoot of the, uh, actually, they're the original before Amish. Mennonites were existed. Amish is an offshoot of Mennonite. And within the Mennonite community, 
They're, they are broken down into so many different factions, automobile Mennonites and, and, the, and, the, and the strict Mennonites and the liberal Mennonites. And you go, holy crap, this is a, just a thing with humanity. We just fight amongst ourselves out of the best way to be what we are. And, and it's just odd. And, uh, and I've always fought against it. Support each other's right to view things differently, but don't argue and fight about it. And so let's let's use that as a segue to come to stay hungry, right? Because I, I feel like, you know, I remember as a kid when MTV first came out and I saw you guys for the first time and I was like, what the hell is this? And I didn't know what it was, but I knew I liked it. And it felt like it was everything that you were just saying. And and it was it was this sense of being like, I want to rock, I'm me. And I just felt like, okay, I kind of want to be a part of this somehow. I don't know how, you know, maybe I'll just start by listening to the music, but, but how, how self-conscious was that, that mission statement from your perspective, or is that just kind of what came out of you guys? And then, you know, you look back and you're like, oh shit, we, you know, we did it this way. No, it was very, it was very deliberate and, and thought out. And I don't mean thought out like in a, a business plan, not at all, but we came out of a, a bar scene, the disco era is when I joined Twisted Sister and bands were, rock bands couldn't work. And if they did, they were meant to be seen, not heard. You were just supposed to play the, the hits and not too loud so people could talk and pick up girls and guys, could, you know, dates could happen. And Twisted Sister came out saying, we will not be ignored. What's the most cheapest, most outrageous thing we can do? And we started literally wearing women's clothing. And, and with a chip on our shoulder, it's just that I was looking for confrontation and I was using this visage to bring it out. And I was making a statement at the same time, you can't tell me how I can or cannot look. You cannot tell me how I can or cannot play. You cannot tell me how I can or cannot act. And it became sort of a battle cry for the band. And then our fans, the SMFs, they didn't dress up like us. There wasn't a bunch of uh, people wearing makeup in the audience, like maybe back in the early New York Dolls days. No, it was a bunch of blue-collar girls and guys coming to see these crazy bastards who were just defiant and being inspired by our defiance and hopefully taking that defiance back into their normal world. No, D, I'm not going to put on the face full of makeup like you, but I will represent what you believe, because I believe that too. And I think that's what happened with you. Yeah. And, and well, no, it did. And it, it's, you know, I think in retrospect, it informed a huge part of my life, but as, as important as that was to me, as the album was, I don't think there was anything that was important as important as the parent music resource center Senate hearings. And I will never forget the, for people who are not familiar, they had something called the Filthy 15. This was back in 1985. Twisted Sister was on top of the chart. And almost every major act, Prince, Madonna, Cyndi Lauper, the, the idea that these people would be considered outrageous or want to be banned or, or labeled in some way right now may seem, may seem odd. But there was a, there was a movement to, I, I think, label certain types of music as inappropriate to in theory protect kids. And it was very scary because all of a sudden this music and this culture that I felt so connected to was being challenged. And I was being told this was no good. This was dangerous. This was dirty. This was evil. And I will never forget 
it was the first time I ever saw you without makeup on, even though back in the you can't stop rock and roll days, I think you guys had it you know without makeup. And you came into that hearing and you laid it out and everybody's jaw dropped. And it was probably one of the most defining moments in rock and metal. And I just, I, if, if you can, maybe just kind of walk people through that for the people who don't remember it when it was happening. Well, you know, it, for every action, there's a reaction. And during the decade of decadence, which they refer to the 80s as, and that's all the hair bands. And the, you look at all the 80s music it was very sensational and outrageous at times. But it also reflects the time. It was the Reagan era. And it was a very conservative era time. And you, for every action is a reaction. And, and I, the kids were pushing back, young people pushing back on conservatism by acting out in a very outrageous, with the party lifestyle and all that stuff. Parents, a couple of senators' wives, Al Gore's in particular, started looking at song lyrics, decided that that they need to protect their children, as you said, by rating song lyrics. So, so parents would make parents' job easier as parents to protect their children from our words. But at the same time, it, it gets very complicated because it's a it's a free it's a First Amendment issue. It's freedom of speech. Who's gonna who's gonna judge what words actually mean when you talk about art? You're looking at a painting and saying, well, what is that? What did the artist mean here? And sometimes it's just a big dick on the page, and you're pretty sure he meant it to write it draw a dick. But other times it's interpretive. A lot of times it's interpretive, and and that was. But the bigger problem it wasn't for me, and I was a parent, which really shocked them. Here I was. I was married and I was already had a kid and I was one of the rockers that they were, they were worried about. I said, what I do mind is how this could be used in, a wrong, in the wrong way. And that is to prevent people from accessing art, to prevent people from getting the music. And that, and, the, and that is what happened ultimately is that the sticker that was put on there, warning parental advisory, was used to segregate records. Stores would not carry albums. That's that's not informing parents. That is keeping art from the general public and, and certain parties deciding what people will listen to and not listen to. That's unacceptable. It was not just that part of what you said. It was that statement of, I'm sober, I'm a parent, I'm a husband, I'm a Christian, I live by those beliefs. And I, I don't think, to be honest, that most people knew that. At that point, you know, people, people may not have known about you personally. And the, the, the thing that I remember, and you can tell me if I'm remembering this wrong, was that there was a song that you had written about surgery that was then interpreted as sadomasochism. <laughs> yeah, that was a great man. I couldn't wait to get in the talk to tell him that because Al Gore, Tipper Gore, I would, would very publicly say that under the blade was a song about sadomasochism and bondage. And it was the furthest thing from my mind. Eddie O'Jade, my guitar player, was having a throat surgery. And I said, hey, I'm going to write you a song called Under the Blade. I was busting his balls. because he, and, and I wrote this song, you know, a glint of steel, a flash of light. You know, you won't be going home tonight. It was from the laying on the surgical table. Now, again, this is the problem with art. I was seeing myself on the surgical table, seeing the the, the blade coming down to cut my throat, you know, this kind of thing. And uh, but she listened to it, and with her dirty mind, this goody two shoes vice president's wife, she saw, oh, some woman's tied up and being tortured, and being like, whoa, whoa, lady, what's going on inside your head? This is, I'm not even talking about that. So this was this was the big issue with that stuff. The, the 
misinterpretation and the problem with misinterpreting what the artist means. And, and one of the things that I remember being struck by when, when all that came to surface is no one bothered to just ask. And, and that's one of the ways that that discrimination of various forms happens. It's not just, oh, I think negative things of you. That, that may be where it ends up, but it starts with, I'm not even going to give you the courtesy. I'm not even going to give you the respect to just, to just ask you, you know, like we can't have a conversation. Well, you know, this, this before is this. human nature. This is human nature. And, and I, want, I skipped one question you asked me and I'll go back to that in a second, but this is human nature. We always, we always, when we, when we don't have the answer, for some reason, we think the worst possible answer. And like you said, if you ask, you will get the answers. You know what I mean? But, but people rather judge for themselves. And, and I guess that a lot of times, often, it's a negative judgment. But um, previous question, you did ask me about that people didn't know about that I was married and I had a kid and I was born and raised a Christian and still adhere those, to those beliefs, as I said. I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. I was always very open about that. Because again, I, I want—I felt I was an individual, and I wanted to share my individuality. But that was the first time people heard about it on a mass scale. That was a huge maelstrom of media. So everybody, the young people, all for the first time, they went, "Whoa, what? What? First of all, this guy speaks English fluently. You know, I mean, he's got a brain, and he's married. So, and that threw a lot of fans. There were quite a few fans." were disappointed that I wasn't what I call a lifestyler. Sadly, a lot of uh, fans like lifestylers. It's a reality TV mentality. They want to know that you're as you know screwed up offstage as you appear on stage. And to me, it was always about, you know, I thought it was leave it all on the stage. I didn't know you were required to kill people in your car in a drunken drive in order to be a real rocker. But to some people, that is a qualification. The matter is, you can't judge, and it's big, always been a big thing. Don't judge a book by its cover. And the Twisted Sister image was such. I remember in the very early days, a West Village gay magazine came down to review the band, cover the band. And we were wearing women's clothing and makeup. After the set, the guy came backstage and said, you're not gay. And, and I looked at him wearing a shorty woman's top and a, a lipstick. And, you know, and, and I said, why would you think I'm gay? Like, I didn't, I, I didn't think that being heterosexual and wearing women's clothing were mutually exclusive. And it would, but there's this, this rush to judgment all the time. And I've always said, look, you see us, you look at us and you kind of know what we're about. I said, I'm worried about you bankers who are all day, you're all buttoned up and you're all tight and uptight and you're sitting in your office and then you go home and that's when you get crazy. That's when you get in your privacy, your own home. That's, you're the one like psych, you know, American psycho. You know, you're torturing people in your, in your apartment while by day you're a businessman, you know? So you can't judge people by the way they look, period. And it's, well, it's interesting what you were saying, going back to this issue of, of Christianity, because we, we had talked at one point about how Black Sabbath had almost a sermon-like quality to it. I mean, you know, one of the things that's so interesting is that metal is one of the places where religious themes are deeply explored. You know, you have these people who are really, really thinking about religion in a, in a deep way and, and playing with it and toying with it and kind of trying to understand what it means to them. And, and the notion that that is considered problematic 
always sort of puzzled me because I think, you know, wouldn't people want anyone in the community to, to start really wrestling with those concepts? You know, which is what, again, when, when we had originally talked about Black Sabbath, you had talked very much about how you were so struck that this was basically a Christian band. Yeah, I remember reading a review, no, by like a Christian magazine that was, was doing an honest appraisal. And they were like taken aback. They said, outside of the way they look, this is, this is like a, a Christian band. <laughs> this, is, this is a Christian band singing about Christian things. But the fact is, truth is, they don't want you to think about this stuff too much. Which is, and, yeah, and, which is, which is ironic. wants you to blindly follow and not question. Because when you ask so many questions, the answers are uh, often very surprising, especially when it comes to religion and politics. Mm. You know, pivoting from there, because one of the things, again, with the idea of stay hungry and, and really just kind of working it, and here you have, you got a new album coming out, a new single. Have there been times where you've questioned your connection to metal, your role in it? Has it been a straight shot, you know, for the last 50 years or so? Or have there been times where it's kind of ebbed and flowed? The only thing I questioned was, and that was very shocking to me, when after the Senate hearings and when I went and testified, I discovered that people were disappointed in me because I didn't fit into the typical rocker definition. And that was a little heart disheartening, not a little, very disheartening and very heartbreaking for me because I thought it was about being an individual and having it your way. I thought it was like, you know, Chinese menu, <laughs> one from column A, one from column B, be the rocker you want to be. And yet I, I saw there were a lot of fans and it was a lot that felt that no. And even I remember being judged by other rockers who say, were saying he's not a real rocker. And, and I would obliterate any, any of them on stage and performance and on entertaining, yet they were judging, saying that I wasn't a rocker because I didn't get high, because I didn't party. So that was disheartening. As, but as far as my love of metal, my belief in metal, and my commitment to metal, and the truth of metal, and as the original, I am the guy who was there. So don't tell me what it's about. I, I was part of the, the birth of this thing. I brought it to the forefront, and I know the truth of it. And the truth is, it's supposed to be for everybody. We're not yeah. supposed to say you're, you're not a part of this because you don't look right. Let's talk about the sobriety thing. I can't I talk too long about this. Let me last question because I have another interview oh, that I'm going okay. right into. Excellent, excellent. Listen, let's just, let's just give a second of where you're seeing metal going. And, you know, you're for the love of metal, the album and the Prove Me Wrong single. Let's just talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Look, metal is alive and well. It had its worst time when it became mainstream. And I was part of that. I thought that would be a good thing for metal, that if the world was a metal, we're all into metal. But when that became a thing in the late 80s, that nearly killed heavy metal for a while. But it didn't now you can't kill it. It just it's like a cockroach. It survives. And uh, it just went back underground, which is where it is kind of healthier. So you don't have it so much on the pop charts anymore. It's more but it's but the audience is massive and we see it there. The young bands, people say the rock and roll is dead, wrong, a hole. Just go out and start paying attention. 
uh, what's going on. Go to the clubs, go to the small halls, go to the festivals where the younger bands are. The passion's there, the fans are there, the music's there, the talent's there. Uh, it may not be your cup of tea anymore because it's mutating, but it's still alive and well. And I'm happy that with the help of Jamie Josta and the company and the Belmore brothers, I was brought more into the now with For the Love of Metal because I love the contemporary scene, but I just couldn't figure out how to create music on my own. I wish I did everything in Twisted. I wrote everything that fit and didn't sound dated. And with Jamie Johnston and Charlie and Nikki Belmore's help and a bunch of other people from the community, they helped guide me to this place where it's amazing. Uh, Prove Me Wrong, which, you know, is the ultimate chip on my shoulder song for those who told me that I would never be able to be anything, is on the, on the metal charts with all the new bands. And I, I love the fact that I that here this old dog, old guard metal guy is being included with the younger bands. And that's I'm much happier there. And I'm proud of the past, but I don't live there. All right. Listen, D, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. Uh, I'll just say again that that your work has been a huge influence on me and uh, the hardcore humanism philosophy and platform. And uh, good luck with everything you're doing. Hope we get a chance to talk again. Uh, we will. I'm doing a lot of, I just finished my first novel, uh, work on a couple of new screenplays. I'm going to be directing a couple of things. I've got a lot of uh, interesting surprises for people on the horizon. So we'll talk again. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Take care. So there you have it. D. Snyder, still rocking four decades later and counting. He refused to bow to other people's stereotypes and judgments. He lived out his sense of purpose, and he worked hard so that he's still making music, still building his career, still connecting to the metal community. And in doing so, he paved the way so that people like myself had a thriving metal community. This is a community where I've met so many open-minded, empathic, and creative people, and continue to get such great music and art. Now, maybe metal's not your thing, but whatever your thing is, I'm sure Dee's story will inspire you to live out your purpose, your dreams. So get at it, hardcore humans. I'll see you next time.